0: by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to to Jesus Christ to all in Rome who are loved by God, called to be and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching. The gospel of his Son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers all at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I have been prepared, pre- I have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have harvest have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Thanks so much, Charlie.
1: And good morning once again, if you were out taking your kids to their programs before. My name is Carl, I'm the pastor of the church here. Lovely again to have you with us this morning. Well, I wonder uh, if you've ever walked the path from Waterfall Gully up to the top of Mount Lofty. In Adelaide, I think Mount Lofty is kind of our closest thing that we get to a real mountain. And if you ever walked up that path you'll know the feeling of being down in the car park with a whole mountain up ahead of you. If you know that pathway, you'll know that it's got some really hard sections, some very steep bits to walk, and then there are other sections that are much easier to walk. There are bits that are muddy, and there are bits where you catch a glimpse of the view of the city. For me, at least, that I don't know about for the rest of you, but for me, at least, the walk is pretty hard work. But getting to the top, you know when you get to that kind of sort of lighthouse thing that's up the top of Mount Lofty? Well, it all becomes worth it because the view is magnificent from the top of Mount Lofty. It's breathtaking, almost. And today, as we kick off our series in the Book of Romans, I feel a little bit like we're, we're down in the car park at Waterfall Gully. The road to the top still lies ahead of us. I hope today you'll see that as we make our way through the book of Romans, we will see on the way some really great vistas, some great truths. And I hope also that as we dig into this book and as we start to understand what God wants us to know from this book, that you'll find the effort of Romans worth it. Romans is perhaps the most famous letter that's ever been written. I think probably more has been said and written about this letter than any other bit of writing in the world's history. It's 7,114 words long. It is Paul's longest letter. And it's often described as his magnus opus. If you're someone who makes a habit of reading the Bible, I imagine that there are some sections of Romans that you just love. for those of us who know Jesus, or, or after the last couple of weeks, perhaps for those of us who are known by Jesus, I imagine that there are certain passages that you go to in Romans often as a source of encouragement. For example, perhaps you're wanting some assurance that you really are part of God's great family. Well, you can't beat Romans chapter 10. I've got the words on the screen behind me. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. Great words of assurance about whether or not you're part of God's family. This is what Paul says. He says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. How great an assurance is that? Plain and simple, if you confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. Well, perhaps you ever wondered what's kind of required of you in the Christian life. How should we go about living a life as a disciple of Jesus? Well, again, you might like to turn to Romans. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are great verses for this. I've got them on the screen as well. This is what Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... So offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to attest and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Great words of encouragement about how to live the Christian life. Perhaps this past week even you've been kind of struck a little bit by your shortcomings and your feelings of inadequacy before God. I wonder if that's you this past week. I love what Romans 8 verse 1 says. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Great words of encouragement. Or perhaps you want another reminder that you are loved by God. We've been looking at this over the last few weeks, that we belong to God, that we are chosen in him, that he knows us and loves us. Let me read to you from the end of Romans chapter 8. This is what it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm sure this is a book that many of us already love. There are some great verses, some great truths contained within Romans. There are also some harder parts, parts that are even more difficult to understand. We're going to see that today as we work through chapter 1. I think sometimes... It feels like to me when I read Romans that I know what each of the words mean individually, but when you put them into the sentence in the way that Paul has, at least at first, I just want to scratch my head and say, what does he mean? At times, Romans will feel like a mountain that we need to climb. I think, though, the exercise, just like walking up Mount Lofty, is good for our physical exercise. I think working through the book of Romans is a good spiritual exercise for us to do. And let me tell you, the view from the top is wonderful as well. When you understand this letter or this epistle, as it's sometimes called, the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus and his gospel become much clearer. Some of you will know of the theologian, reformer, French pastor, John Calvin. He lived in the 1500s, so he's an old guy. But he had a big impact on... The church today. This is what John Calvin says about Romans. I've got a quote of his on the screen behind me. He says, If you have gained a true understanding of this epistle or this letter, we have an open door to the most profound treasures of Scripture. What a great encouragement for us from John Calvin to do the hard work of climbing the mountain that is this book. It's not just John Calvin that's been affected by the book of Romans either. Pretty much every time in the church's history where there has been reform or revival or change, Romans has had some part to play. It was Romans that helped Martin Luther to understand the grace of God, and that led to the, in part, to the reformation of the church. It was Romans that lit the fire in the belly of the Wesley brothers that went on to see great revival from there. I want to encourage you to see Romans as a masterpiece. It's no wonder that it has been labelled as the greatest letter ever written. Well, just so you know where we're going as a church and what we're going to be doing as we try and unpack this letter... Uh, We're going to look at Romans together for the next three weeks and then uh, we have three weeks with Jeff Lynn. Jeff will be coming to speak to us on a a different topic from Romans. Uh, But after jeff has been with us, we're going to return to Romans and we're going to stay with it pretty much until Christmas time. Part of the way through that, Simon Marshman from Trinity City will be up for three weeks to help us keep working through the book of Romans. That will give you a chance to get a break from me, which by that stage I'm sure you'll be very glad of. But we'll be working through Romans pretty much for the rest of the year. And so as we kick off a kind of longer series like this, it's it's good to lay a bit of a foundation to ask some of those questions about who wrote this book and why it was written and what it's all about as we head into looking at this over a number of weeks. So who wrote it? Well, It was written by the Apostle Paul. The text itself tells us that right up front in verse 1 of chapter 1. What might not be quite so obvious perhaps for you though is that it was probably dictated by Paul rather than written from his own pen. We know that from the end of the book from chapter 16 in, in verse 22 we read this, it says, I, Tertius, wrote this letter, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. So it was written by a scribe, Tertius and dictated by Paul. Why did he write to the Roman church? I wonder what you think about that. Many of you will have read the book of Romans before. Why do you think Paul wrote to the Roman church? There are many books in the library at the back here that try and answer that question. I think there are a number of potential reasons as to why Paul might have written this letter But I think at least one good explanation as to why Paul wrote this letter was that it acted as an introduction for him to pave the way for a visit he intended to make to Rome. Now, it's not that Rome was his final destination, really. He doesn't want to stay there for a long time. But it does seem that Paul wants to use Rome as kind of a staging post or a respite stop, As he moves on to Spain, that's his ultimate goal, Spain, not Rome. We know that because Paul tells us those things in chapter 15. In verse 20, Paul tells us that his ambition is not to preach where Christ has already been known. I want to read to you from chapter 15, verse 20. This is what Paul says. He says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. Do you see, by the time Paul is writing his letter to Rome, the gospel has already made its way there. And Paul considers himself a church planter, not not a church builder. And so although he longs to go to Rome and to encourage the church in Rome, His intention is really to move further west, to move into Spain. We know that because he goes on to say that in verse 23 of chapter 15. This is what Paul says. He says, But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. So why does Paul write this letter? Well, at least one of the reasons why he writes this letter is to introduce himself in preparation for a visit he intends to make. Why he wrote it. But what's Romans actually about? 16 chapters, what are they about? Well, it's about the Gospel, isn't it? We heard that from Marv this morning in a kids' talk. It's about the gospel. There are, I think, four major sections or four major panels in the book of Romans. They help us to see, firstly, that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. Secondly, it'll help us to see that the gospel creates a new people or a new humanity, a new group. Thirdly, the gospel fulfills God's promises to Israel. And fourthly, the gospel brings the church together. The gospel is the thing that unites us as a church. Four things that are all to do with the gospel. Romans is really about the gospel. It's about how God is at work in the world through the gospel. And it's a book about how the gospel shapes those who live it out. It's all about the gospel. I've flicked you through various parts of Romans already this morning, but I would love you to come with me to the start of Romans, the section that Charlie read earlier, Romans chapter 1 on page 1744. If you can turn there with me, that would be great, because I'd love you to have a look at the text with me. At the start of this letter, it is the Gospel and Paul's credentials as a Gospel teacher that he uses as he introduces himself to the Roman church. And I'll work through these first few verses slowly with you because they are a foundation that Paul uses as he writes to the Roman church. Let me just read again these first five verses of chapter 1. This is what it says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets In the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. See, in verse 1, Paul begins by spelling out that this story is not his own story. The gospel is the good news about God. It's not Paul's gospel. It's the good news about God. It's a useful reminder for us today, isn't it? We don't own the gospel. We don't have a license where we're the sole users of the gospel here at Trinity only. The Trinity Network doesn't own the gospel it's God's gospel. In verse 2, we see that the gospel is not a new thing. It's always been God's plan. When we look through the Bible and we read the whole story, when we look at the Old Testament, I think sometimes we might conclude that things didn't kind of work out according to God's plan. We might be tempted to think of Jesus' as kind of plan B, the emergency backstop when it all went wrong. But Paul's clear here, isn't he? The gospel was promised beforehand and was spoken of by the prophets. It's a gospel that regards God's son, but it's not a new gospel. It was always God's plan. Always God's plan. In verse 3, we see that the gospel, it's about God's son. It's about Jesus, who in his earthly nature was a descendant of King David, but he's also here being declared as the son of God. In other words, Jesus is the promised king, the king who would reign forever. In other words, Jesus is God's Messiah. I think that's what Paul means when he says here that Jesus was appointed as the Son of God. How did that happen? Well, it happened through his resurrection. If we want to see the richness in these words, we need to get a bit of Old Testament background. See, the language of the Son of God is not like... um, like me saying, Gus is my son. It's not quite what's happening here. Rather, this is a throwback to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel, God promises King David that one day when he dies and his days are over, God would raise up another king, a descendant of his, who God says will reign forever. He says, I will be his father And he will be my son. Of that promised king, God says his reign will endure forever and ever. Of that king, death will not be the end. And Paul tells us that Jesus is declared as that king. Or as the NIV puts it, he's appointed as the eternal king through his resurrection. Jesus is the longed-for king of Israel what it means for him to be God's son. In verse 5, I want you to see that the gospel demands obedience that comes from faith. Paul sets out very clearly, right early on in his letter, that the gospel is not simply a, a take it or leave it kind of thing. Because the gospel points to the lordship of Jesus. The gospel demands allegiance to this great king. It demands obedience that comes from faith. So, can you see just in these five opening verses here, Paul laying his credentials as a preacher and as a teacher of the gospel? You know, in the terminology that I think we're familiar here with at, at Trinity Church only, Paul nails it when it comes to understanding the gospel, doesn't he? He's demonstrating up front that he's an authentic gospel preacher. He's demonstrating up front that he's able, as he wants to do in verse 11, to impart some spiritual gift to the church in Rome. If this is Paul's letter of introduction, which I think it is, introducing himself as he prepares for a visit, five verses in, he has shown what the gospel is, and hopefully he's caught their attention. So here's a letter that's going to deal with the gospel. A letter that will explain the place the gospel has in the church, both in Rome and the world over. In verses 8 to 14 of chapter 1, Paul Paul talks a little bit more about his desire to visit the church in Rome and his inability to do so in the past. I'd love you to read those verses in the week and have a think about what might have been preventing Paul from getting to Rome. There's some good stuff being written on that. But for now, I want us to skip over those verses and I want us to come down to verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. Because most scholars or commentators who write about the book of Romans see these verses as critical to the letter as a whole. They call these two verses Paul's thesis statement or his proposition. Let me read them to you. His thesis statement or his proposition. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed—a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as is written: "The righteous will live by faith." For some of us, these words will be new for us today. We might not have read them before. For others, we might have read them hundreds of times before. But I think for all of us, probably at some point, we would think that if this is Paul's thesis statement, we would wish that he had made it a bit easier to understand. Because it's pretty dense, isn't it? I wonder what you make of these verses. What is Paul trying to say in these two verses? I think he's answering one of life's big questions, or one of Christianity's big questions. And here's that question... If God is a holy, holy, holy God, how will God make for himself a people who are genuinely his own, a people who are part of his family? Because people on the whole, in fact, all people are not holy. Do you know that? I know that. We are fallen, we are broken, we are sinful. And if God can't come into the presence of sin as a holy God... How will he ever be able to make for himself a family of people? But God's always promised to do that. Right back in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham, God promised to make a family for himself as numerous as the stars in the sky. But that family, it's going to be made up of people who continually fall short of what God desires. How can that possibly work? It's not a new question, is it? But it's a big question. A big question for us as Christians. I want to show you that it's not a new question that Paul's just thought up either. And to do that, turn back with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk. We've been flogging the minor prophets lately, haven't we? We looked at Malachi, the Italian prophet, a couple of weeks ago. Now I'm asking you to turn back to Habakkuk. Um, To save you searching for the rest of the morning to find Habakkuk, it's on page 1,461 of your Black Bibles. Um, We're not actually going to read much of Habakkuk this morning. I don't normally encourage you to do this, but for the sake of time, I just want you to notice the NIV heading titles in Habakkuk. In chapter 1, you'll see that Habakkuk complains to God. And essentially, his complaint is this. How long will you put up with the rot? How long will you put up with the oppression? How long will you put up with the violence that is happening to Judah your own people, and in Judah, by your own people. Habakkuk says, God, your people are a mess. How long will you put up with that? And God answers Habakkuk by essentially saying, I'm not going to wait very much longer. I'm going to send the Babylonians to bring justice on Judah. For those of you who have been around for a while, you remember that story from when we looked at Isaiah. God says, I'm going to bring justice, and I'm going to do it through the Babylonians. And that prompts another question then, another complaint from Habakkuk, which is essentially, how can you use a nation that is even worse than us to bring about your justice? Good questions, aren't they? If God is a holy God, but God has nonetheless promised to create a people for himself, a family, how are you going to make the people right? How are you going to make a people who can stand before you and not be guilty in your presence? And so that you can see that God has a plan for this all along, Paul quotes from Habakkuk. Have a look there in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Habakkuk. This is what God says in answer to Habakkuk's questions. He says, See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. The righteous person will live by faith if you're Habakkuk at this point, you might be wondering how, I think. How? How does this all work? And that is exactly the question that Romans sets out to explain and to answer. See, now if you come back with me to Paul's thesis statement in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. Paul says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I take it what he means here is I'm not disappointed in what the gospel delivers. Because the gospel, well, it delivers salvation. It's the power of God. It's powerful enough to overcome this great problem of a sinful people coming into the presence of a holy God as part of his family. It's a saving power that's effective for everyone. In verse 17, we read, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. Wondering what you think those words mean. The righteousness of God is revealed. Much, much ink has been spilt on that one phrase. I want to give you two options for what it might mean this morning. They come from the Read, Mark, Learn commentary on Romans. It says this, The righteousness of God is the righteous state that God confers on people. It's the first option, the righteous state that God confers on people. Or secondly, it's the righteous way in which God saves people. I think, in fact, both of those ways of understanding the righteousness of God are correct. So what this verse is saying is then that God righteously makes people who were otherwise sinful righteous, right before him. Not guilty, in other words. That is, God acts according to his character in keeping with his promises to make a people righteous. And that's done by faith from first to last. See, faith has always been how it works. Hence the quote from Habakkuk. Righteousness comes by placing faith in the God of the gospel. God has always saved by faith in Jesus. So the gospel is, in a sense, the answer to the big question of how can God remain just and yet keep his promises? And the answer is through the gospel. The gospel is the answer to the question of how God can be both a just God and a holy God and a God who creates for himself a people. The book of Romans will go on to show us that this is done through the saving work of Jesus who was a substitutionary offering, an atonement that made a just God able to declare a guilty people righteous that's the great joy of the gospel. And that is Paul's thesis statement that he outlines early on in this book. What is Romans about then? Well, in a sense, it's about this. How God makes a guilty people righteous. It's also a book about how a family of saved and redeemed people can then live together. And that's what makes this book so valuable for us. Some of that may seem a little unclear today. Remember, we still have a mountain to climb and we're just at the bottom of it. We're just starting out today. We're still down in that kind of foggy and misty and slightly unclear section of the trail. We haven't yet kind of got to a vantage point where we can look out and see what's going on. I encourage you, if you're feeling a little bit confused so far in Romans, stick with it. It's worth getting to the top of the mountain. Next week we're going to see Paul lay out very clearly the case against us as people. We'll get to our first vantage point, and it's not a pretty one, but we'll see our own dire need for the gospel. That's where we're going next week. Let me pray for us that we'd understand this book and that it'd have a great impact on our hearts. Father God, we thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you that this book provides... Answers to the deeper questions of who you are and how you work. We thank you for what this book has to say about the confidence we can have in you. We thank you that in you there is no condemnation. We ask that you would use this letter to fortify our minds and our hearts in love for you. Help us to understand how you work and why you work in this world. And use that knowledge, please we ask, to fortify our hearts for your good. Amen. I've got a question today. I'd love you to keep sending in your questions to the SMS line, and I'll do my best to try and answer them. Uh, our question today says, verse five, "How does faith produce obedience? Is being obedient different to being righteous?" Uh, verse 17. Now, let me start by trying to explain what I think righteousness might mean, because it's not a word that we use very often, is it, righteousness? We don't normally use that word in our everyday sentences. If I was to say this in a sentence, if I was to say something like, Chris is a righteous sort of person, I wonder what you think I would mean. Uh, probably you would uh, think that I mean that Chris is upright, he does the right sort of thing, lives a moral life, those kind of things, which I think would all be a good way to understand the word Righteous. But I think the other side of it that we need to understand in the book of Romans is that righteousness has, in a sense, a declaration that we're not guilty. So saying righteous before God means that we are being declared as not guilty. So it's kind of, in a sense, a legal term. You stand before a judge, the judge declares you righteous, not guilty of the crimes that you've committed. I hope that makes sense. That's kind of how, the, I think, one of the ways in which we understand this word. Um, Let me just go back to the question. So if we're to understand righteousness in that sense, how does that work with obedience? Well, I I wonder whether or not um, just flicking to Romans chapter 12 would be a good way of kind of answering that bit of the question. Romans chapter 12 sort of starts to deal with the practical implications of the gospel, and Romans 12 verse 1 starts with a therefore, and I assume that what's going on here is that uh, Paul is saying, in light of everything else I've said about the gospel and about your own righteousness and about what God has done for you, therefore I urge you to live a life like this. Be obedient to me in this way. And so, obedience then flows out of what God has done for us through the Gospel. I hope that's helpful. If it's not, please come and see me afterwards. I'd love to chat a bit more about that with you. Please send your questions in. Romans is a great book to have
0: questions in, and if I can help answer those questions, it'd be great. Thanks, Chris.